Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 167 and this episode is with Ben Ashworth. And Ben is the Director of Performance at Sparta Prague, also previously of Arsenal as well. He came on to talk about his role in Director of Performance. We spoke about who should be Director of Performance in terms of what job roles um, we talked about some of the skills required for the role, also some of the skills that he feels that he's had to develop once being in the role as well. We talked about his testing philosophy, some gold standards for shoulder health, because he's got a lot of research out there on the shoulder. Um, we also spoke about the use of force plates in the return to play process as well. So covered absolutely loads on this one. So I hope you enjoy all the content and the chat with Ben. Just before we get into the podcast, I just want to take this opportunity to say a massive thank you to everybody that supported our networking events this year. At the start of the year, we weren't sure how many events we were going to be able to run, if we were even going to be able to run events at all. We've done seven events, which has been incredible. And I just want to say a massive thank you to everybody who supported. And by supported, I mean that could literally be telling someone about them giving it a share on social media, presenting, coming to the events, hosting the events. Massive thank you to everybody that's that's been involved. All of our meeting presenters, Ross Burberry, Tom Scoopian, Luke Hemmings, Tim Horn, Liam Anderson, Reese Carr, Mike Beer, uh, Patrick Holm, Jordan Tyra, David Johnson, Dawn Scott, Brent Dickinson, Mark Devonshire, Simon Brundish, and our last event with Damien Hughes. Huge thank you to everybody. And a special thanks as well to our sponsors of the events, Black Box, Rezzle, and the Good Food Prep as well. I'm really excited to announce um, some events coming for 2022. I will hopefully be doing that in the next episode as we just um, confirm just the last few details of some events for January and February. But if you are at a club, and you're interested in hosting an event, please get in touch. You can drop me an email, mail at footballfitfed.com, and we'll look to get something booked in for the new year. But like I just said, huge thank you to everyone that supported, and I'm really excited to bring you some top events again next year in 2022. Let's get into the podcast now. So episode 167 with the Director of Performance at Sparta Prague, Ben Ashworth. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 167. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Ben Ashworth, Director of Performance at Sparta Prague. Ben, how are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. No problem, mate. Thank you for coming on. And like we do with everyone, Ben, I'm sure many people know about possibly your role now, which I'm sure they will, but definitely some previous roles. But can you give us a little insight into your career and what led you up to the role at Sparta Prague? Yeah, sure. I'll try and keep it as short as possible. But uh, I'm getting old now, so there's quite a lot of history. Um, so, yeah, I started as a physio and predominantly that's my background is a physiotherapist uh, with a degree back finished back in 1997 and um, did a lot of sort of playing around with sport and finally landed a job in, in rugby at London Wasps. And uh, it was probably before I really knew what was going on around me in the performance world, but um, was really fortunate to work with some pretty high-performing individuals on the pitch and off the pitch. Um, and then went from rugby to Olympic sports. An opportunity came up to work with the Olympic Institute and the British Olympic Association, uh, residential rehab, 
and working with athletes from summer and winter games, which was an incredible learning environment. And then from there, went on to be in charge of a, of a small team uh, in London before the London 2012 games. And as a practitioner there, I ended up working with British judo for three years just prior to the Olympics, which was getting my teeth stuck into working with a sport day to day and influencing a program over a three year period, which is uh, another unique experience. And again, one I was very fortunate to have. So that then led me towards um, being probably in a little bit of the shop window after the Olympics with a lot of good practitioners, but managed um, to get a lucky break from someone outside of football to land a job as first team physio at Arsenal. And I spent six happy years there um, working with the team, with the first team and a number of good practitioners. And then I left Arsenal when Arsene Wenger left and had a year of, I like to call it midlife retirement. Um, it was basically about nine months. And then one of the players from Arsenal um, who I'd worked closely with became the sporting director out here in Sparta. And he called me up wanting to see if uh, I knew anybody who would want the role. And one conversation led to another. And I ended up out here nearly two and a half years ago now. Um, and I came, it was pretty rapid. I think I went on a skiing holiday and then uh, before the end of the season, I ended up spending eight weeks here, which, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't the intention, but that's been a fantastic experience over the last like two and a half years. And it's still ongoing now. Brilliant. And was, was the aim in your career to end up in football or was that just how things worked out? Was it opportunity? It's opportunity, definitely. Um, yeah, I think the, the job in football is an incredible, it's an incredible experience and slightly different from working in, say, like, um, you know, jobs like Olympic sports. Um, the scope and the scale of working in professional football, especially in the Premier League, is, is just you know, massive. I'm sure some of my friends and colleagues who work in the NFL and, and, and big sports in the US as well have, have the same you know, experience themselves. It's just everything is on a much larger scale. The, the stakes are higher. The finance and the investment is much higher. Um, so, yeah, I ended up in football but it was largely because it was a really good job and most of the career steps I've taken have been around wanting to work in the best jobs uh, not necessarily the easiest ones uh, yeah. but the ones that provide you with some scope to have an influence and, and work with good people solving problems on a day-to-day -day basis so that Arsenal one was fantastic and then since then I've stayed in football um, and but you know I don't think that football is going to be where I am for the rest of my career necessarily. Um, I think just a new look, a fresh look, a different sport, a um, bit more sort of different stimulation when you go to a new place where you don't really understand a sport like a judo or where you have to understand a culture like out here in the Czech Republic. You know, there's got to be something yeah. always for me that that provides that added stimulus and perhaps that um, added ability to develop myself and that's what I've tried to do continuously through each role that I've applied for or taken on yeah well, what were some of the key lessons obviously with Olympic sports you're on that constant cycle of of working towards the next games is there anything you took away from that 
to uh, relate into obviously working in the Premier League and now with your current role? Yeah, I mean, the incredible thing about the Olympic sports was the number of high quality practitioners. And so, the, the, you know, with the English Institute of Sport, the network's vast. You're working day to day with really good strength and conditioning coaches. Um, you're working with physiologists, psychologists. It, it's just this, you know, all encompassing um, performance team. And so sometimes when you go into uh, a, new, a new role, perhaps the thought process are different. You know, you've got all the facilities, you've got all the um, technologies available to you, but are the processes and the ways of working actually supporting the team? And I think when you've got, you know, a pencil and paper and you're one physio in charge of 28 players traveling around the world, you know, managing injury audits and perhaps doing rehabs and everything, you're a sort of one man band. And then you end up transitioning to a place where you've got five first team physios working with 27 players. You can imagine the potential for the detail changes. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, what's interesting is it's always about people and process. You know, it doesn't matter where you are, whatever level you're working at, uh, whether it was Blackheath rugby back in the day when I was doing some extra evening work or whether it's Arsenal football club, it's the same. It's the same thing. I think. Yeah, brilliant. And I want to talk about the, the transition from head physio to director of performance um, in, in your current role, because we've had this debate, I suppose you call it, discussion around who should be, because we don't qualify as a director of performance. There isn't a degree to go and do that. Is there anything like that? Um, but in terms of uh, yourself, like, getting into that role and maybe others that are, are working in football or other sports right now, looking to get into a role like you're in at the moment, who do you think it should be? Like, is it a case of certain job roles should be considered or is there more to it than just a, a sports scientist ending up as a director of performance or, or a physio or whatever? Yeah, I'll just, um, and, and I've, I'm not precious about these sorts of things, but I, I think I'll just pick you up on one thing. I was the first team physio, but I had a head physio. We'll come on to that. We'll come on to that later. Colin Lewin, who was, uh, you know, hugely influential in, in my development and our team's development. So, yeah, I worked under Colin there at Arsenal. Um, so going from kind of first team physio to director of performance, it, I always said to the people that I worked with that I would, be always every day thinking about what would I do? You know, if, if I've got a boss or a, there's, there's a leadership group and I'm looking up, how do I help them do their jobs? And often what that means is you're, you're trying to take a sort of more overview or a bigger picture perspective of, of how your role interacts and how you can help the team as a whole. So I think you, if you've got anything about you, you're thinking about how you would work if you were in charge of the department, yeah. uh, you're thinking about who you'd want to work with. Like, you know, would you, would you keep this, the team that you're working with? Would you want to recruit um, or change the dynamics depending on the personnel that you're working with? So I think if you've got anything about you, you're going to be looking to try and progress and have more and more influence. And from a position of first team physio, there are layers and always layers above you. And invariably you're going to have different opinions um, which is a healthy thing to those people that you're working with. 
And I think then the chance to be in charge of the team, then where it ultimately comes down to reaching consensus, but you're the person with your sort of head on the chopping block to make that final call. That's, that's the, the real reason why, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a nice transition to be a director of performance or in charge of a team. Um, and it's perhaps not a linear career path. Like some people would go physio to head physio, mm. uh, you know, as you mentioned, and then they might go head physio to head of medical. And then, you know, so it's, but at a club like Arsenal, you're probably not going to get those opportunities to step up. Yeah. Um, you're probably going to have to go elsewhere to go forwards. And I think the best thing just, and I'm waffling a little bit here around this, but I think what was interesting was when I left Arsenal, I knew I didn't have to go back in as a first team physio. And in fact, I didn't have to take the first job that you know, came my way. Um, I could wait. And that made me really look at it and think, well, what do I want? I wanted yeah. to be in a position of influence. And what that meant was probably I wouldn't be working in the team anymore, you know, working on the small things. I'd be trying to work on the sort of biggest, bigger picture stuff. So that's a long-winded uh, introduction to my answer to your question. Um, who should be director of performance? Well, I, I think, I mean, you know, from my side and perhaps with a little bit of bias, of course, it doesn't matter whether you're a sports scientist or an S&C coach or whatever it is, a physio or a, a head of medical. But what, what you need is good people around you. So if you're a physiotherapist as a director of performance and you've got a medical background, you'll need pretty strong leadership from the people who are working in the sports science and, and the um, sort of strength conditioning components of the work to have them as, you know, sounding boards for the things that basically they're more expert in than you are and vice versa. I think, you know, I've got some good friends, uh, Clive Brewer is an example who's worked in a number of different sports and he, he comes at it more from the strength and conditioning sports science, but, you know, having had some great chats with Clive over the years, He's very across the medical aspects, but again, for someone like Clive to go in, you know, he'd, he'd probably get more benefit out of having someone who's a leader in the medical aspects and physiotherapy aspects alongside in his team, even though he's got that breadth of knowledge. So I think it's, it's finding a balanced set of skills um, across the director performance role. And, you know, CEOs for major companies, there's not one type of CEO. There's different types of leaders. So I think, it comes down more to character and skill set than it does down to a specific uh, practitioner. And if we, I just mentioned this to you before we started recording, but if we, if we're talking to people now that are practitioners that are getting to that stage of their career where they're looking for that next opportunity and they feel like they can take that step up to leading a team, applying for director performance roles or whatever it is, what would you say? Like these are some of the key skills that you've got to, have to be successful in that role yeah i think you've most people who end up in a role like this have had to have proved themselves in their own uh, profession to a point they have to have earned some respect uh you know uh, the word sort of skin in the game you know is is probably a good one once you've got that and to that level it's not so much about the technical aspects and the technical competencies it's about you know, actually viewing um, leadership as a skill and being able to develop strong leadership characteristics. And that can come in many, many forms. But I think that's something that 
you know, again, I was fortunate to develop through English Institute of Sport. We had a leadership program. I met some really good people that challenged me and put me in my place, I would say, as I was developing as a young man. Um, and that set me on the path. And then I've been under some good leadership as well. So if you want to be a director of performance, there, there, are, there are now high performance masters, actually, of one of the physios at Arsenal that I work with. Um, did a high performance masters mm. so there are actually qualifications you can do but I think if you're applying for a director of performance role um, being skeptical I would say that most of them have already been you know earmarked for some person so you need to be networking in the right places with the right people uh, you need to make sure that you've got uh, all the things on your CV that will promote you and differentiate you from other people, but that you have a really good uh, basis or grounding in leadership. And that doesn't mean you've led a team before necessarily. It just means that you've uh, developed your character and skill set in that aspect of leading other people and developing other people that would make you stand out from the rest. Yeah. And if we're talking about leadership, is that like the key skill that you feel like you've got into this role and that's one the skill you've had to possibly work on the most? Or is there something else that stands out where you were like, no, I, I needed to improve on this and this maybe wasn't something that I realised I'd need as much on? Yeah, I think there's some technical development pieces that that come up just, you know, on a weekly basis where you might be talking about planning pre-season training blocks or you might be talking about setting up a rehab pathway and I still try and keep myself in check with research one of our coaches we've had four coaches in the last two and a half years but one of our coaches here was very sort of um, very old school sports science based so wanted to you know use a lot of kind of lactate testing and I spoke to Martin Bouchard, spoke to uh, Rob Thorpe and again, people who are experts and published in this area so that I could upskill myself to know, you know, where, where the sort of world's best practice sat hmm. along the thinking around lactate testing before I then went into the head coach and could have a really good conversation with him and my fitness coach about if we were going to do it, when we were going to do it and, and how, and, you know, it's, if you don't have that understanding and breadth of knowledge, it's really impossible to go and have a good conversation about influencing a program. So yeah, you end up having to develop technically across quite a broad, um, broad set of skills. But I think the leadership stuff for me is the key. And the, I think <laughs> we spoke before about this I, at the moment, I'm waiting on Christmas to read this book, but I, it's um, <laughs> The Habit of Excellence, which is uh, why, why British Army Leadership Works uh, by Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp, MBE. And, you know, if you skim read, which I tend to do quite a lot of, if you skim read, one of the biggest reasons they think that people from Sandhurst have are become effective leaders is because they see leadership as a skill. You know, and the development of that is the, is the key part of, um, of their success. And, you know, leadership then comes in many forms, whether it's communication, developing other people, empowering them to do their job, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many things around leadership that you can look at. But, um, yeah, not just reading it in a book, not just reading a Harvard Business Review, but actually applying it in real life 
and you know being able to have a an opportunity to make mistakes and you know you're working with human beings you've got to establish trust if you if you aren't able to establish trust in any environment you're not going to be very successful uh, they'll soon find you out so yeah those are probably some of the key things yeah, 100%. It's interesting you're saying there about like different different approaches as well. Because if we relate that to like first team coaches, managers, like you see all the different approaches that they take, don't you? There's different personalities, different ways of leading. And some can be equally equally successful as well. And players too. Like you see some great captains, leaders, don't you? But do it in very different ways. So I think it is, like you say, the skill of leadership. Yeah, there's not a specific type of leader, is there? I mean, you're right. And, and it's, it's also that kind of balance around personality. I mean, for those people who've done that kind of, those kind of insights profiling and, and have understood themselves first, that's really important. Like I know what I am on a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know the type, I know the types of people that uh, probably I could rub up the wrong way if I don't consider where they're coming at these problems or where they're coming from. Um, so that's a really important part and anyway, just slight, slight tangent here, but we now, when we sign players, we do a sort of psycho psychometric profiling of them as well as mm -hmm. the physical testing and the medical. So we look at, you know, coachability and other things that one of our, um, our mental coach sets up for any foreign or English player, that, uh, sorry, any, uh, foreign or English player, any Czech or foreign player that comes to the club we'll do a, we'll do a psychometric screen. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that, isn't it? Cause I, I've heard people speak about that before as well. And that in terms of recruitment, I'm guessing that can be a big part because you look at cultures and successful teams over the years, like you hear people speak about personalities. And I remember, um, I think it was on the high performance podcast, Casper Schmeichel speaking about like the Leicester team that won the league and all the different personalities that were in that team they weren't the same by any means, but you had to have these different sort of personalities that obviously complemented one another. And we can take that and apply that to like a sports science team or a um, physios or whoever, or just a, a coaching team as a whole, can't we? Yeah, absolutely. And if you're in an echo chamber with people who are the same as you, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of blind spots. Um, I must have skimmed, read another book. So Matthew Said, Rebel Ideas as well, talks about that. You know, if you've got a knowledge space and you're all in one part of that knowledge space, you don't tend to see what's, what's you know, potentially hidden or um, those kind of things that you need other perspectives on from a group. So a diverse thinking is, uh, diversity of thinking obviously is quite a big buzz, but it, it means a lot when you sit in a room and the sort of an example of that, if I ask my team, right, what do we think about this guy? Is he ready to return to play? I really love that one of the guys almost apologetically goes, I don't think he's ready. And he'll have a completely different opinion that's perhaps more conservative to the rest. But he's yeah. the one that's on the pitch every day working with that player. And he's seen it and he's, you know, it's quite in depth, his understanding of what he's seen. So if he doesn't feel like he can put his hand up, and challenge everybody else who are pushing, pushing in maybe in one direction, will end up maybe making some mistakes by pushing too hard. If he wasn't there putting his hand up and feeling comfortable to give his opinion, we would be maybe, um, I don't know, pushing too hard in some cases where we wouldn't. 
sometimes we'll say, look, thanks for the opinion, but we're going to push anyway. Yeah, yeah. But but it's better to have that out there, you know, in an environment where you can then sit down and reach a consensus. Yeah. Well, they're the healthy environments to be in, though, aren't they? Where you feel like you can speak out. Yeah, not everything's going to get the go-ahead on, on what you're saying, but that creates good positive conversation, doesn't it? It does. And by the way, it's not it's not perfect. You know, I'm not suggesting for one second that that we always have great conversations. Of course, there's going to be difficulties and different pressures and scenarios change. And, you know, we've made some mistakes as well as a team uh, when I look back on this season. So, you know, you're constantly evolving. And what's really important is you reflect on it. So you, yeah. know, you almost debrief on those mistakes or those moments where the decision could have gone one way and ended up going the other. Um, if you don't reflect on it in the now, in the moment, then you tend to lose those lessons and opportunities team and develop as a team. Yeah. Yeah, Brill. And to shift gears a little bit, Ben, a bit off topic, I know, but um, we'll tie it in nicely. I just wanted to ask as well about your testing philosophy. So looking into sort of testing, monitoring, obviously people have different views, opinions, um, on how to go about it, but I thought it'd be a good topic to discuss with yourself on, in terms of your philosophy. Yeah, God, we, we could go all day on that, um, but we won't. So <laughs> where, where I've come from is I basically, I was in charge of pulling together a lot of the stuff for the EIS around a sort of national remit for looking at screening and monitoring or screening and testing. I'm not too precious about the words that you use, but um, you know, I, I think it, don't get bogged down in the sort of the, the rhetoric, but essentially many different teams and practitioners doing things specifically for their own sport, pulled it all together with the FA, England cricket at the time and England rugby and got everybody in a room at, uh, I think we went to Wembley to have this discussion and then we fed it back as a, as a group. So I did a lot of reading around screening and monitoring before those conversations happened. And then I was able to see what best practice was within the sort of um, you know, home countries, sports, plus also Olympic sports. And that was a massive learning uh, curve for me. And then I had to apply this at the moment, in the moment with British judo. So there's no point me testing stuff that I'm not going to use. And I think that's one of the keys to so measure the things that matter and make sure that the uh, information is impactful. Um, and so when I went to Arsenal, there was a huge amount of testing done. And I'd say screening, we used to call it screening at the beginning of the season. But then we all agreed that quite a lot of it fell on the floor. Mm -hmm. And actually, we skinned it right back. We had the opportunity. We were lucky. We won an FA Cup. And even though we'd had a pretty poor injury season, um, we, stayed, we stayed in our jobs. And uh, we're, we're given the opportunity to set up a screening and monitoring process. And what we all agreed eventually through some pretty good heated discussions was that we don't need, we're not going to use some of this stuff. We actually not threw out Cybex that would have probably landed on one of the cars in the car park, but we, <laughs> we, we, uh, we went, right. We're not using isokinetics for knees and, uh, you know, we're not using hamstrings and quads in season. So why are we using it? Let's stick with the jumps. Let's stick with the isometric hamstrings that we're using. And so long story short, essentially find the stuff that's going to give you um, a preseason benchmark that you're then going to be able to use to monitor athlete status throughout a season as that changes, whether that's through 
a long-term development process or whether that's through fatigue, through dense fixture congestion periods. Um, and then the tests you choose, the, the monitoring tools you use, they have to be reliable and valid. Um, they have to be interpretable. There's no point in having players in and doing two hours worth of testing if, again, you're not going to be able to turn around the results. So the, the back end of that has to be something that is really slick and efficient. And we'd have, you know, pretty much a whole squad once a week at Arsenal going through a monitoring process in about a 30-minute window where we looked at some key measures um, and we put that straight into the cloud. That was fed as a sort of flagging system to Colin Lewin, who was sort of at HQ working with players and also feeding back to the manager to Arsene. And, you know, that became something that over a three-year period, and Colin's published this actually, he, he reckoned we had about 65% compliance early on and then by the end, probably about 95% compliance um, with the testing process. And I remember being on the M25 one afternoon and Colin phoned me and said, the boss is asking about the data from this morning's testing. Mm -hmm. We're off up to this game, but he wants to know the test results. Like, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, because back two and a half years ago, there wasn't that sort of opportunity to educate or there was a limited understanding of the potential of a, of a monitoring process like that. And actually over that three-year period, the injuries, well, soft tissue injuries went down 35%. So the long story short is it does depend on, you know, your kind of capacity the, the stage that your team is at in its evolution to cope with a screening monitoring process. Um, maybe that kind of level of understanding, have you got people there who can use force platforms or force frames or whatever you're going to use? And then can they actually do something meaningful with the data? You know, how do we present that to coaches in a way that's not going to, you know, <laughs> cause paralysis by analysis, you know, and, and, in a way that can engage with them, it can engage with players. So my testing philosophy is do what do what's right, measure what matters, make sure you act on it. Otherwise you lose players and staff and everybody just, you know, runs away from it because it's not easy. Yeah. You have to have a consistent vision of where that's going to take you. And it's probably not going to reap any benefits for about, you know, 12 month period. I think, the last thing to say is that, you know, most people go in and go, well, how long till we get some meaningful data? Well, I think you have a three to six month surveillance period where you say, we're going to put this in place. We're going to see what happens. If we see something as a massive outlier, then we're going to act on it. But otherwise, we're just going to use this as a, a process of education. I think you start to get bang for buck when you've got around 20 measures on a player. It usually takes three to five to get them familiarized and then yeah, if you're if you're doing any sort of testing, probably around twenty is a is a decent number to then be able to see meaningful change in those athletes throughout a season that you know you can trust. Just a very quick update on our online community. So, as well as the presentations from our Nottingham Forest event from Brent Dickinson, Mark Devonshire, and Simon Brundish, we've also now added the presentation from the co-hosts of the High Performance Podcast. Damien Hughes, Damien did a brilliant presentation on who wants to be a high performer, set up like who wants to be a millionaire, covered loads of great content in this one. And there was a bit of interaction with the, some of the attendees as well, some, some Q&A involved in this presentation too. 
as always from Damien, absolutely first class. So you can check that out on the community now. If you're a community member, simply go and log in and it's in the network meeting presentation tab. Um, if you're not already a member, the good news is you can grab yourself a free month on the community by going to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there. That will give you one month free on the community. After that free month, it is only £4.99 going forward. And we've got some great content to add over the next few weeks and into next year as well. So go and check it out. If you're not already a member, go and grab that free month by going to footballfitfed.com, clicking the community tab, go for the full sign-up process, and you'll be able to watch the presentation from Professor Damien Hughes, who wants to be a high performer. Here's part two of the podcast with Ben Ashworth. I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because that's something that I've, I've spoke to a few coaches about where they're talking about collecting data. And obviously, there's certain things that they're trying to narrow it down. So this is the useful stuff. This is maybe not so useful at this time, like we've talked about there. But then there's other things, isn't there, that you might just be collecting in the background as maybe a just-in-case or um, things that you might use a little bit more sporadically or that they might come into play in the future. So then that's that that's the fine line, isn't it, between do we disregard that or do we keep collecting it? And I, I'm not expecting an answer to say, do we do this or do that? But that's where the, I suppose there's a bit of confusion in that process as well. Yeah, you've got to be clear what you're... You've got to be clear about sort of short-term, long-term vision. Um, as an example, we've got uh, all of our drills clipped. We've got drill libraries for each specific thing we can tell you you know 5v5 uh let's say on a small pitch what the pitch size is you know it's nothing new it's being done elsewhere it's nothing amazing but what we know is we know what our players look like so we know on average then what a center back will do in that drill and then we've got a predictive drill builder now where we can look at setting that up and say well if you want to do this if you want to do five minutes of that, 10 minutes of this, and you know, then actually you're going to get this sort of amount. And we can show the difference perhaps between, say, pitch size, between, you know, like the drills that our coaches use. And, you know, on the uptake there, we're ready for when we want to go to that level. And we've got, say, now it's, as I said, it's our fourth coach. And I think coaches work in different ways, you know, like we're here to understand and help them to understand their program and their experience. And we probably use that more behind the scenes than we do on a day-to-day -day basis with the coaching team at the moment. But we have this long-term view that actually that will be really useful, you know, going three months, six months down the line when we start to really dig down to another level. But I think where we are at the moment, you know, with this performance team and this coaching group is we're still developing, building a relationship. You know, it's still relatively new, even though it's not quite a year yet. The new coach came in in February and we've not even done a full year together. So that will take time to build understanding and trust and, and develop uh, those processes. Yeah, definitely. And that's, we could speak about building by in trust, but that'll probably open a whole new can of worms. So we'll, we'll move on to the next bit. In terms of, I know a lot of people that have probably seen information, the research that you put out around short, the shoulders. Um, 
I wanted to ask initially, where did the interest come um, in looking in, into this? It's a really good question. There's nothing, there's nothing cool like, you know, I was a, I was a schoolboy javelin thrower and, I, my, and my, my shoulder fell off or something like that. No, no, sorry, it's pretty boring. It's like, well, I ended up working in a lot of collision contact sports, rugby specifically, and then in, into judo. And judo, like, probably was where my interest was peaked because we had about 20, 22% of our injuries were were shoulders and actually about 24 were knees so I could have gone down the knee route but that was that been done overkill and not many people were doing shoulders particularly well um and so I just thought you know what I'll read a bit more about it and I'll I've got some shoulders to work with I need to do it anywhere for my job and I was rehabbing maybe five shoulders a day for weeks slash months and I suppose I got a bit better at it and then people started to ask me about stuff. And then I worked with Ian Horsley, who's got a great background uh, in shoulders as well. And we set up a course and that developed well. And people wanted Ian and myself, that small team to come and talk to them. And that's just grown. And, and I think, you know, just there's, there was a tipping point around maybe 2011 where I really sort of got interested in it. And then I went to Arsenal where there weren't many shoulders, but I continued to tick that over as part of my own development through that period. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I find shoulders quite easy, but that's because of hours and hours and hours of reading, of doing. And, and I think that probably the best thing is actually trying to teach other people yeah. how I think about working with a shoulder. That actually having to do that has been the biggest development for me is because then you not only you know, doing, you're actually having to translate the why about how you're doing your work, you know, and that's, that's been brilliant for me. And that meant that I had to go and read more, ask people more, um, you know, and that's just evolved. And now I've ended up probably working, you know, as an Englishman working in the US with baseball teams, with the NFL teams, I still consult, I consulted with a major league team for this season. And looking to do that same thing again remotely. So I haven't even set foot on the on the training pitch um, in the US, but I've been able to add value to a team uh, of athletic trainers and, and strength and conditioning coaches in, in shoulders. So that's, and I've just been asked to be on an NFL steering group around preventing shoulder injuries. So it's just, you know, I, I look back and actually I'm pretty like humbled by the, the, um, the, the opportunity and where it's taken me from pretty humble beginnings back in around 2009 to now where, where, you know, athletic shoulders, my, my company is, has potential to go in the future. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because it's a, like you said, it's an area that, especially in football, we probably don't focus on as much, but, and like you said, looking at the knee or somewhere like that, it's, it's talked about a lot, isn't it? Um, so no, I just, I just thought it'd be interesting to go into, where that where it was the sort of foundations where it came from and then off the back of that I remember I think it was Charles Poliquin maybe years ago having like standards that he wanted to hit around the shoulder and I think it was like an external rotation in in relation to bench press and things like that so I was going to ask you if you if there are any sort of gold standards that you have like similar to that or is it a case of taking case by case or player by player yeah, it's always difficult to, to set up those standards. 
Um, I thought you were going to pull out the Charles Poliquin, you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. <laughs> I think quote, I have used that in the podcast before. <laughs> one of my favourite quotes, essentially around transfer of force from lower limb through into upper limb for shoulders. And yeah. that's that's great because some of the standards for shoulders are actually, and if you speak, I'm fortunate to speak to Eric Cressy, got him on the podcast, um, which I'll plug later, by the way, our own yeah. podcast. Um, and we were talking about standards and he was reluctant to draw a line in the sand, but he, he works off some set standards for someone doing a trap bar deadlift or, you know, from my side, when we're looking specifically at shoulders, I think we're looking at, you know, 50% of body weight in the hands for a, for a single, uh, basically a dumbbell press. So horizontal press. When I say that, you're probably going to take off VAT of about 20%. So let's say you've, you've got, if you bench press 100 kilograms, you'll probably uh, be able to dumbbell press 40 kilograms in each hand. All right. And that's maybe a standard that you, know, you could set for some of the top athletes. Um, but it changes whether you're a forward or a back in rugby. And so... I think that some of our standards now are largely around the data around force testing. Yeah. Uh, we know as an example that you're weak if you don't hit 167 newtons on a force frame external rotation test. We know that if you're below 165 newtons in an ash test in an eye position, uh, and again, for those people that don't know, we can link, link to the ash test and other things, but then you're weak in, in baseball terms. And we know what a good ratio looks like in baseball now with over a thousand tests across one organization over a season. So not just published research, research, but what's going on behind the scenes. And I get asked these questions all the time, like, you know, what's, um, what's a good rate of force? <laughs> this, this is my, this is my evening's entertainment. Like, What's a good rate of force development in a, in an eye test position, Ben, a hundred <laughs> milliseconds. God, I, I live a life, don't I? But <laughs> And I'll say, right, well, probably a minimum cutoff is 400, you know, newtons per second at 100 milliseconds is where you want people to be, but they can get up to 1,000, but it depends on how you test. So, so many different um, things to consider and other caveats around setting some standards, but I like to do it. Um, I like to do it because then you've got something to measure yourself against. Yeah. What about in terms of relating that to football? Because we've, we've obviously you mentioned about rugby and you mentioned a few weights there that might send shivers for a few footballers' spines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good, good man. Well done for well done for bringing me back. Well, Meza Ozil did, uh, he did three sets of six, 36 kilogram dumbbells. So that's Meza Ozil. So there you go. There's a terrible name drop but also one that I think people will associate with because that's a player who people don't believe necessarily has the physical strength to manage it. He's seen as a very tactical, technical, gifted footballer in that respect. Yeah. But he was smashing out upper body weights and was hungry for upper body weights because he felt like he needed to develop strength to be able to you know, compete in, in the Premier League. Mm. And that was one of his limiting factors potentially was you know people kicking him and punching him and and him not being able, be able to dish it back. So he felt stronger for it. And he went from, 
you know, 28s up to 36 over a period of rehab where he had a hamstring problem. And we just helped him to put on a little bit of upper body weight, which was probably quite necessary, but there's a good standard, you know, if Mesut can do it, uh, you know, no disrespect to him, but there's a hunger there to develop some, some upper body capacity. And he, and he was hitting 36 kg, which is, I don't think I could move that today, to be honest. Yeah. That's some, <laughs> that's some good weight. Some very good weight. And um, it's interesting, isn't it? When you dive into the programs of players like that, because the, the perception of what people have in terms of players being strong and weak, I think a lot of people from the outside have this vision of a strong player and a vision of a weak player and, it's not always the case, is it, when you start looking looking into the training and what they do and what they can do as well? Yeah, people come from different walks of life. They've been told different things, perhaps why they haven't loaded through their life. Um, you know, my, my current boss, uh, Tomasz uh, Rosicki, he, he probably came to strength and conditioning at the latter end of his career, you know, and we were getting him loading for him some pretty decent weights towards the back end of his, of his career. But... It, he hadn't really done a huge amount of strength and conditioning from the early parts of his career. He's just naturally talented, very fast, uh, you know, genetically gifted individual with a brain that's probably even faster. Mm. Um, you know, and he, so that's, I mean, it's, we don't need to talk about his abilities, but essentially from a health and sort of um, longevity of career perspective, had he come to strength and conditioning a little bit earlier, and being taken under someone's wing there and developed that, I think perhaps he wouldn't have suffered some of the, the things that, you know, uh, got in the way of him perhaps um, spending more time on the pitch. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a huge, there's a huge education, cultural piece, different philosophies from different countries that will influence whether someone lifts away or not. And, you know, even in terms of return to play from injury, some countries won't, and I, it's a generalization, but obviously now I'm working in a European country and I've seen players from Germany, Spain, France, vastly different philosophies across, across just dealing with a muscle injury rehab, which is really yeah. interesting. But you wonder why, you know, what's, what, how can it be so different across mm. different, different teams and what's the, what's the best way? And I think, you know, very biased about the way that I choose to go about it. You know, loading's good from my standpoint. Other people are really reluctant to load footballs, and they're really reluctant to load um, load injuries. Yeah, and I suppose I don't know, we could probably talk about this for forever, but I suppose culture comes into it, doesn't it? Because I'm guessing everyone's reading similar sort of research, and but then there's there's reading research and putting it into play, isn't there? And there's, it's not just the decision of going, we're going to go with this. Like, there's going to be other factors isn't there especially in certain cultures and environments that come into it like you say in countries where they haven't got that sort of snc culture experience um it's it's a harder harder fight i suppose isn't it to try and get it into the program yeah and i think that, that that's developed by you know your own individual experience you know if you take someone out and you're doing a hamstring rehab and you decide you're going to go down a acceleration based approach um, and then that goes wrong for you because you've got a really powerful, explosive athlete who's not doing 60%, he's doing 90% and, you know, he's not looking after himself. To put him in that situation is higher risk than to put someone who's less explosive in that acceleration-based rehab. Very horses for courses is trying to, trying to pitch it so that it works for that individual and doesn't 
increase the risk of, of recurrence of injury. And, you know, whilst I think we, we managed to somehow get an MRI, MRI proven grade one hamstring back in seven days, when I say we as a team, it's hugely down to the individual. So his max speed isn't as high as some people in the team. He doesn't do as much sprint distance. He's a, he's a professional athlete who keeps himself well and can manage himself within a game. He came back and played 92 minutes, seven days after a grade one confirmed MRI hamstring injury. I've never seen that. I think the best before that was maybe 13 days that I'd seen and the average is 17 days. So, you know, but from experience, we're often trying to shave time off rehab processes. Mm -hmm. But most of the conversations I have are like, the longer you can give them, the better. Yeah. Yeah. And also that it can't be about timeframes. It can only be about stepwise progress. If you pass this marker that we've set you, then you can go and do, you know, if you can pass X, you can go and do Y. And by doing that, you're putting a little bit of a kind of, safety net on the process but what you're not doing is you're not using it to hold them back in fact if you, you have to be prepared that if they if and when they pass your tests um that you're going to have to let them go and play or that you're going to have to let them go and sprint or train or, yeah yeah make them uncomfortable make them really uncomfortable standards but if they pass them they're that you know you can't you can't then say no you can't go on the pitch because you know of a another reason you have to stick with those things. So it's a stepwise progress. It's not time frame related around these things. Psychologically, as well for a player, that that makes more sense, doesn't it? Because if we are, especially for longer term injuries, we know that there's a there's a lot that goes into that from a psychological side. Like so, but if we're talking shorter term for players, it's a little bit more manageable, isn't it? That we're saying yeah. like next week or the week after we want to hit this. And then they've got numerous small little microcycles of, of that rather than saying, right, we've got a 12-month period or whatever it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, breaking down these targets is key. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think people who don't know me very well will see or listen to me speak and they'll go, he's a very numbers-driven or data-driven person. And I am because it grounds the decision-making process, but I'm still prepared to listen to you know the clinical experiences of a physio as part of you know that that are they ready process i'm still willing to listen to the guy who sticks his hand up in a meeting and says i don't i don't feel he's ready i know he's passed his hamstring isometric tests i know he's able to sprint he's done this volume this week but i think he's still risky i'd like him i'd like to see him train for a few more days and assess the reaction before we go there i'm still happy to have that um, less objective data to be used as part of the overall the overall process. So that's kind of the more the merrier. And again, it probably comes back to what we were saying earlier around the knowledge space. You know, if we're just going down forces and measuring forces and looking at numbers, are we missing something that might be key in it? I think I might have gone full circle from like physio world where it, it can be a bit fluffy and grey um, around feeling and tone and what's going on through to a very objective strength conditioning directed approach. And then I'm not coming full circle because I think force is one of the key things. Um, and numbers are really important around training volumes. But recently I've started to dip back into like 
okay, well, actually, let's make sure that we still capture the uncapturable, if you like, mm. and factor those in as part of those of the overall decision process. And I think that's just a few lessons learned from you know, speaking to players, speaking to physios, and actually spending more time asking questions rather than necessarily kind of just battering through a rehab process. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I know you just touched on there about producing force and we'll bring the, the Poliquin quote up again about um, not being able to fire a cannon from a canoe and being able to handle the forces that we're producing. But if we relate that to like the end stage process of rehab, return to performance, I wanted to just touch on just finally about where force plates fit into that um, and how you um, how you utilise force plates in that, in that very late stage of, of a rehab process. Yeah, so I, I'm, I've been, again, really fortunate. I met Daniel Cohen, who's like, for me, he's, I mean, he's a friend of mine. So I spend a lot of time on the phone to Columbia. So <laughs> sure, the police will be interested about that. But um, I, I spend a lot of time on the phone to Columbia in all, all hours of the morning. So it's, it's sounding dodgier and dodgier. <laughs> but essentially, it's all about force platform testing. And it's about myself and Daniel discussing and me tapping into his vast knowledge and experience in that area. Um, long story short, we're probably going to write a piece or a second part of a piece with Matt Taberner, who's now at the Orlando Magic. He was at Everton and has written some brilliant stuff um, as part of his PhD in the chaos, um, control chaos continuum. And we're looking at what we describe as session cost, which is essentially, if I give you two Two examples. We've got one player maybe who's got an ACL coming back to play. We'll look at a counter movement jump or three counter movement jumps before they go out onto the pitch. We know what the session is because we've got the GPS data and then they come back in immediately and they do three more counter movement jumps. So the acute post-session response. Then we look at the 24 hour and the 48 hour response as well. So the next morning before they do anything else, have those things changed? And there's some you know, not unusual, but some different ways that people react. Some people, they offload their injured limb. Mm -hmm. But when they go into a session that's quite fatiguing and they use their healthy limb more, they then come back and they're perhaps more balanced on landing forces afterwards mm -hmm. because they actually can't use the healthy side as much as, as previous. So that's one way things can happen. Another thing that can happen is immediately after a session, if it's not too fatiguing, you can see jump numbers go up. And some of the other characteristics around a jump that we'd look into go up as well, uh, almost like a potentiating effect. So that's why capturing it the next morning is really important to see what's the overall cost of that session and, and how's that recovery profile over the next kind of 24, 48 hours. So that's probably where leading work is going, I would say, in terms of world's best practice around, around the people that I know doing good things. And then to give you a recent example, we had a sort of recurrent rec fem problem and we were looking for some of the reasons why perhaps this might happen. So we started to do some counter movement jumps and it brought attention and focus to this rehab and we wanted to set some markers. But what we saw was quite interesting was around this, um, uh, this metric, which, you know, for those who aren't into jump, uh, jump testing and force plate testing so much, looking at eccentric deceleration RFD. And that's basically the bottom of the, the bottom of the movement, the bottom of the squat before you transition to then start to push your concentric force to then explode off the force platform. It's like 
athletes who are comfortable throwing their body into the ground harder and faster with higher eccentric deceleration forces are better in terms of performance. And we sometimes see this asymmetry. And what we found in this guy was his jump numbers were going up, but his eccentric rate of force development asymmetry was staying, um, was staying quite asymmetrical to the point where we needed to do something to influence his program. And that's the key to all of this. It's like, well, so what? Yeah. How are we going to change things? And we felt that he fatigued early through that side. We started to do some blood flow restriction stuff with him around a metabolic loading. We also started to work on that eccentric deceleration phase using actually some eccentric loads and some heavier loads. Um, and overall, actually, now his jump height as one measure has increased, you know, by a considerable amount over quite a short period of time. But still, when he's playing, you know, he's playing on a Thursday in Europe and he's playing on a Sunday. What we see after those is that, you know, jump heights as a very blunt measure of fatigue can go down but that even when the jump heights stay high and he's prepared we can still use this kind of you know that's the tip of the iceberg but what's underneath the surface and, and what we see is that that eccentric rfd in that respect is our marker of or our sense checker really to see is he going in the wrong direction or is he coping well and most of the time interestingly enough when we ask him how he's feeling when things aren't looking right on the force platforms, he tends to feel like the answer good right. himself. You know, that subjective looking a person in the eye and, and developing a trusting relationship is a huge part of also what we're going to do in terms of um, making decisions about whether he's ready or not to, to feature and play 90 minutes or whether we need to start to look after him. I think that really nicely sort of wraps up and gives a great practical example of everything we spoke about right into developing trust with the player, getting involved in the process and then the testing, what's needed, what's not, because it's it's relating it back to, like you said, performance on the pitch and um, like what we're doing with any data that we're collecting as well, isn't it? So I, I really appreciate you going through that because I think that really nicely like caps caps off everything we spoke about. Um, if, if it's okay with you, Ben, we'll just move on to the final few questions that we finish each podcast with. Sure. Um, first one, I know you've mentioned a few names already, a few of which that have been on the, the podcast already, I'm, I'm glad to say. But so, who are some of the biggest influences on your career so far? Yeah, you, you sent these to me in advance, which is great. Thanks for doing that, because otherwise the second question would have, would have killed me. I think you'd have had just <laughs> silence. Um, the first one around biggest influences, I, I basically look at it as two teams. So the English Institute of Sport team that I was fortunate to lead in London, uh, you know, and again, it was me working with some bright young things like James Moore, Mark Young, uh, for those people who don't know them, have probably put together some of the best learning and education pieces that I've ever witnessed. And they were on my team and I could just go and spend time with them on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, at different track and field sites across London. It was fantastic and extremely challenging and brutal at times um, for my own personal physio skill level. Um, so that was pretty cool. And then there's around that time, there's Ben Rosenblatt there, uh, Alex Wolf, uh, you know, Raf Brandon, Dan Howes, just that, that was a real golden period for kind of, the English Institute of Sport and Practitioners, and I was I was in amongst it. 
Um, so you couldn't you couldn't turn up at work if you didn't have your A game, you know. Yeah. So that was one group, and then I, I do, and, I, and we mentioned we mentioned Colin earlier, but I do think that the team that Colin set up at Arsenal, bringing in diverse people to help solve some of the problems he was experiencing, was was actually like hugely on his part, kind of um, a hugely what's the word? I think it's very perceptive in on his part to look at where perhaps he wanted the team to go he had a vision of what he wanted to do he didn't want people who were just from football he wanted to bring diverse opinions into the team and people who could lead departments so there we had you know a lot of people like Andy Rolls James Haycock Deck Lynch Simon Harland Gary O'Driscoll the doctor you know I, I'll name them all Shad Forsyth who's worked with the German national team hmm. I'm probably forgetting a couple of people there. Having mentioned loads, I, I, I should have I should probably mention them all and I'm going to get killed for not mentioning some, but I think I've got them most. That was really uh, another good team where, again, day-to-day basis, you're solving problems together. And, um, yeah, we, we, we were in the trenches six, seven days a week. So, yeah, those are my biggest influences, those two teams, because I, I do speak to a lot of individuals, as I've already name-dropped, and more. And mm. my network's great uh, through people like Daniel Cohen and who they've connected me to in the States. And I, I can just pick up the phone to some of the best people in the world. And, and luckily they, <laughs> they pick up the phone as well. <laughs> That's always handy. <laughs> the <Yeah>. answer. <laughs> oh God, it's Ben again. It's, it's Ben again. <laughs> well, here we go, Ben. The question you've been looking, looking forward to. What would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? Um, well, outside of this sort of shoulder expertise, which I have to kind of, you know, put out there, I suppose. Uh, I actually, I actually cheated. I asked one of my team and he, he said, um, well, you know, you have got this expertise and, um, and recognition for being a shoulder guy you know, and you're doing this work at that level in shoulders, but actually you do have a breadth of knowledge across a number of things. So the broad knowledge that you need to be a director of performance um, to be across a lot of things, I think would be biggest strength. Um, one of the things that one of the players I worked with a lot and was very close to at Arsenal said about me was that he felt like I was always trying to find a solution like that I was pushing to try and find it. I wasn't happy with where we were. I was always trying to find uh, a solution uh, that, that helped him. You know, that, that came from him. It was quite nice to hear a footballer take time to actually think about what they think of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'd say that goes for my very, uh, very progressive. I always want to have an influence and impact. Uh, uh, Colin and I used to, you know, probably bump heads a little bit because I was trying to, smash through walls to try and you know get things in place and 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 improve us as a team but now actually on on the on the flip side now that i'm in charge of a team i'm kind of like look you know make sure you see this progress over the last two and a half years don't worry so much about this short term look how far we've come and i've actually gone full circle and i've become i've become an, an echo for colin which i think is hopefully quite a good thing yeah brilliant and then finally, mate, what's, I always ask people their approach to like CPD, 
um, continue learning? Because I think it's really interesting to hear about different practitioners' approaches and also when you're really busy, like how it fits in with, with what you do. So what's your sort of approach to that? Yeah, I, I did a lot of formal education when I was when I was younger, when I was just purely a physio. As you heard, I read quite a bit when I need to around the stuff that turns up day to day. But best way of doing it is to, to use your network. And I remember when I was looking at my own development at Arsenal, we had a development budget. I literally said, I want to go to the States. I said, why do you want to go to the States? Well, I've done a physio master's, a strength conditioning master's. Uh, I don't really, there's no more sort of formal learning I want to go and do in that respect, but I just want to go and spend time with some of these people that I believe are highly influential in the industry. Mm-hmm. So I was very lucky to get the opportunity to travel to the US, firstly, um, as part of my development at Arsenal, but secondly, when I had my midlife retirement, I got on a plane and I went and did a West Coast tour of the US and spent time with good people. I went to like NFL teams, I went to Navy SEALs, I went to all over the place I think you get to a point where the formal learning isn't going to be good enough for you and it's not that you need to it's not that you fully replace that you're always going to be reading papers or trying to keep current and relevant but I do believe that the sort of network stuff now and the ability to just jump on a call for 45 minutes to an hour around something specific topic those are the things that help you develop more than than anything else um especially when you get to sort of a, a later stage of your career. <laughs> no, it's a great point. I think that's come up numerous times. Like people, some people have mentioned certain resources and things, but the majority of people mention speaking to people, whether you can do visits or obviously technology is great. Now we can just jump on a Zoom or a call or whatever. Like it's, it's easy to do, isn't it now? So I think that's, that's great advice. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, Depends on your mood. I mean, at the moment, I've stopped listening to I've stopped listening to too many uh, too many sort of educational or kind of industry based podcasts. I've I, I keep them down to a minimum. Mm. Um, I'm actually listening to some true crime stuff right now. You know, so like it's like just to just to actually to stop the, some of the noise because I think you can get really bogged down with it. Yeah. But there are periods where you get into it and you want to read articles, you want to, you know, and, and I, I tend to go like that. I'm very binge in terms of my my willingness to develop. And I, when I'm on it, I'm on it. And there's times though when you need to, you know, look after yourself a little bit, give yourself a mental break and and get away from get away from sport, get away from constantly listening to industry-based stuff and actually go and do something for your own mental health. So that's that's where I am right now, especially long long year winding down to a winter break oh you mentioned before like with the book that you're reading like you've got to be aware of areas that you can improve and it doesn't always just come from sport does it or football in particular like there's loads of other there's business there's all other areas we can learn from um that, that they use very similar skills that we can sort of transition into what we do yeah exactly um and it becomes more relevant when you can apply it to what you're doing in, in, in the moment, you know? So I, I, I think uh, when you're exposing yourself to quite a lot of different resources, there's often something that makes you click or, you know, a light bulb goes on as to maybe how you can do something a little bit different. And I can't think of a good example, but I definitely had one of those in the last week around, Oh, I think it was around um, looking at the way we set up, 
rehabilitation train or more preparation training and and are we creating enough kind of chaos around that or are we you know allowing athletes to focus too much internally on what they're doing and just landing on a bozu or you know where's how's that transferring into the sport and that came not from listening to anything technical I think I was like reading something or listening to an audio book or whatever it was and again the light bulb went off and I went in and I had a chat my couple of the physios independently and the next day there was like balls and bozos and bands and everything around the place <laughs> so, banning you from doing any reading outside <laughs> I, I, yeah I, th- I think uh it, it was a little bit overkill the reaction to me saying I think we need to do something more but um yeah maybe it's a good sign that people are listening to me <laughs> yeah no it's a great point as well sometimes removing yourself out of that environment in that situation it does spark creativity and and I suppose, reflecting on what's going on as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant, mate. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Ben. Let's just wrap things up by, um, we've, we've said about the research that you put out, the information around shoulders, but also the, the podcast as well. Have, have you got the links um, in terms of where would you send people to, to go? Yeah, so the podcast is Informed Performance and you know, myself and Andy McDonald run that with a couple of other people that help us there. And that's developing really nicely. I think you can follow me on uh, on Instagram as like Ben Physio Coach or prob- that's my personal one, but really probably Athletic Shoulder is the best one. And it's the same on Twitter. It's Athlete Shoulder on Twitter. Um but yeah, if anybody wants to reach out, LinkedIn or anything, doesn't matter. And quite honestly, the people that have reached out, um, and it's not that many, I must say, but the people I, who have reached out, I've got quite a number of people now who are in my wider network, who I learned from on a day-to-day basis. And originally it was just an introduction over something like this. So yeah, please reach out. I've got a bit of time when I'm not on the phone to Columbia and... <laughs> when I'm not worrying about what RFD looks like in an eye test. Um, <laughs> I've got a bit of time on my hands, so I'm only too happy to give a bit back and help out if I can. So, yeah. Brilliant, mate. Well, I really appreciate your time, Ben, and thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. Thanks a lot, mate. Top man. Stay in touch. All right, cool. Thank you for listening to the podcast and big thank you for Ben for giving up his time and coming on. I've been chasing him for quite a while and I knew it would be absolute gold by the time we got him on. So I really appreciate him giving up his time. Loads of takeaways again for me on this one, but I'll just try and narrow it down to a few. He mentioned about um, each role always being about people and process. And I think that can be applied to any practitioner working in the game. Um, He said about, so I talked to him about when you're in the director of performance role, if people are looking to get into a role like that in the future, what are the sort of things that you'd advise people on working on? And he said about thinking about how and who you would work with if leading the department. So how you'd basically work in that role before you actually get into it and some of the changes you might make, um, some of the things you might prioritize. So really good, solid bit of advice from Ben there. Um, we talked about the importance of leadership, and that was obviously something that is defined in his current role, um, sitting above a lot of the other practitioners and making um, decisions, that final decision, 
being led by other um, roles like physios, S&C, sports science, but basically the, the last decision falling on him. Um, learning, more than, uh, learning from more than sport. So looking outside of sport, like can we look at some of these other ways of working in the business world, maybe in different sports, like different ways of working that can be related to um, you in your role. And I think that that leads to anyone in any role as well, not just a director of performance. And then creative, uh, creating positive discussions and environments. So I think it's really, really important that the environment that you're working is, is open, honest, and it doesn't mean we can't disagree, we can, but there has to be um, that environment where people can speak up, they can voice their opinions, and um, they can be listened to, and they don't always go with those opinions, but we have to have those positive discussions and be able to um, speak outright. And then he also talks about the strength of network. Obviously, something we talk about a lot, and it's the whole reason our, our events are run like they are, but it is so true, like create a positive, strong network. Don't just interact with people people for the sake of it. You want people around you that are going to challenge you in the right way, um, but you also have to give them something back as well. I, I fully believe that you can't just be in um, taking from people, asking advice from people. You have to give that little bit back, and regardless of what what experience level or what ability you have, you can always offer something. So just have a think about how that fits into your role. This episode goes out just before Christmas. So I just want to say a massive Merry Christmas to all the listeners, um, all previous guests and everyone that supported us this year. Hope you have a great Christmas with your friends and family. And I'll speak to you again in episode 168.